and welcome to another episode of Curiosity Killed the Rat. My name is Matt. I'm a science enthusiast and I'm joined by a couple of lovely people here today. But before I introduce them, I would just like to acknowledge that I am talking on lands uh, traditionally owned by the Noongar people. But yes, I will pass it right on over to you, Kate. Hello. Yes, I am here as well. I'm Kate. I'm a neuroscientist, uh, the regular scientist on this podcast. And I am joined very excitingly, well, I, we're both joined very excitingly today mm. by a guest. We've got Dr. Jen Martin joining us, who I'll throw to in just a second. But before I do, I would like to just acknowledge that both Jen and I are recording from lands traditionally owned by the Wurundjeri people. So, Jen, hi, how are you? Hi, Kate. Hi, Matt. Thanks for inviting me. It's a bit exciting to see you both. Thank you yeah. for coming oh, on today. So exciting. So, Jen, do you want to tell everyone why you're why you're here? It's very dramatic, isn't it? Why are you here? What are your credentials? As in, as in, why am why am I on the planet? Or why am I on the planet? That's right. We're getting existential. Oh my goodness! It would be good if I could pronounce that correctly. Existential. Existential. I'm adding an extra T in there. Yeah, Egg, eggs, like existing, eggs. existential. Eggs. Yeah. Well, I think I'm here, Kate, because uh, you and I are mates because I had the great fortune of having you in uh, a subject that I teach at uh, mm. Melbourne Uni. When was that? Last year? Who knows? Was it last year? I think so. I don't know. What is time, right? So, yeah. so I'm I'm an ecologist by training. So I spent many years out uh, in in the wilds, following animals around, trying to understand what they do and why they do it. But I, I started to have real misgivings about the value of what I was going to contribute to the world as an ecologist. Not that I don't think ecologists are incredibly important, but I, I realised that a major gap in what we were teaching all of our science students to do was to communicate about their work in ways that other people find interesting and other people can understand. So mm. you and I met because I now teach science communication at Melbourne Uni, but I think why I'm here today is because I had the incredible privilege at the end of 2019 of going to Antarctica and I feel like anyone who's been fortunate enough to see Antarctica with their own eyes has an absolute duty to share what they experienced there yes. because the reality is most people are never going to go. No, I Which am incredibly really jealous. sad because I would love to go to Antarctica sometime because I love the snow. I love the ice. It's just <laughs> such a beautiful part of the world and it seems so amazing in so many ways. So I'm really looking forward to hearing that vicariously through you. Yeah, it's so it's so conflicting though, Matt, because I'm one of these incredible fortunate, incredibly fortunate people who's been there. Yet when you've been there and seen how precious and how vulnerable it is, it's really hard not to come back and feel like you want to say, well, no one should ever go to Antarctica. It should yeah. be left completely alone. Yet how obnoxious is it for me to say that when I've actually been there? So it's really conflicting to go there mm. because you sort of feel like you've walked into a documentary. And, you know, for me as an animal lover from from the you know, word go, seeing what I thought I would only ever see in a documentary with David Attenborough or whoever, it just blows your mind. But then as you start to learn more about the impacts of tourists being in Antarctica, you mm. start to think, oh, I never should have gone there. This is this is terrible. I'm so part of the problem. Yeah. Well, you know, we're, every person is part of the problem, right? Mm. But going to Antarctica effectively as a tourist, although I was working there, but I wasn't there uh, collecting any data about Antarctica, mm. Um you know, it's, 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 yeah, it's very conflicting. So it's good for me to talk about it because I'd like people to know more about the place, but I'm certainly not here suggesting that I think everyone should be going Everyone there. should go see it with their own two eyes yeah. as much as we'd yeah. love to. Yeah. Yeah. I totally get that. Like I'm, you know, inclined to be like, I'm so jealous. I would love to do that one day, but you're right. Like it's, you know, I'd love to have a good enough reason to do that one yeah. day. Yeah. Um, but I just don't think that you know as a neuroscientist anyway there's necessarily never much of say a role never. Penguins for me. have brains i mean <laughs> <laughs> i mean yes but i don't have to go to antarctica to research penguin brains i don't think um unlikely i reckon all right well do you want to do you want to tell us a bit about why you know you say you were there working but you weren't working working you weren't collecting data what what was the you know how did you get such an amazing opportunity how did how did this happen for you 
So there's a, a global uh, initiative called Homeward Bound, which some listeners may have heard of. Mm-hmm. Homeward Bound basically begins with the premise that we need more women with a background in STEM M, so science, technology, en- engineering, maths and medicine. We need more women with that background in leadership positions. So this is not to say mm-hmm. that men aren't good leaders, but it's to say that we know that there's a real dearth of women in leadership positions across every sector and particularly when it comes to making decisions about our planet's future, we know that women tend to be quite different leaders than men. Women tend to be more collaborative, women tend to be more cooperative and women also tend to be somewhat better at adopting a legacy mindset, which means thinking about the impact they're having on the planet. So we need more women in leadership roles. And so Homeward Bound was found not by a scientist but by somebody uh, who recognised this, Fabian Datner, who said, I want to support more uh, women with a background in STEM M to become leaders. I'm going to do that by founding this global leadership program. I want most of that to be online learning but then I want to take that group of people into a setting that is completely immersive, that is isolated, that is remote, that is going to be an incredible place to learn about effective leadership and to really think about our impact on the planet and how we can uh, all work to have a better future. So it, again, it's conflicting, right? Because you can say, but hang on, mm. if this if this group of, of STEM M uh, people want to contribute to a better future. How can you justify going to Antarctica? But yet mm. the learning that we all had there mm. was quite incredible. So I was fortunate to be there as one of the staff members. So we had uh, 99 women from 34 different countries there plus 12 staff from I think eight different countries. Yeah, and wow. so 111 of us all on a ship for three weeks basically learning for half the day and then getting to experience Antarctica for half the day. It just sounds like the greatest school excursion as an adult (laughs) one could ever have. Like that sounds like a dream come true. Yeah, it was, it was really incredible. And I guess the only way to to rationalise having been part of this effectively a tourist trip, I mean, it's hard, right, because we weren't there as tourists. We were there because mm. we were learning and we, we put in really long hours. It was, it was definitely hard work. Mm. Um, but the only way to justify it is to say think about this group now who've come back not only with really high-level leadership skills but also a whole lot of knowledge about Antarctica and about the planet and how they want to tread lightly on the planet but also that first-hand experience that just gives you this incredible passion to try and make a difference. And, you know, we're all in touch constantly, this, this group of women. So this mm. is this was the fourth cohort of Homeward Bound. Homeward Bound is a 10-year program. This was the yeah, fourth wow. cohort. And, you know, they're just incredible, utterly incredible women doing amazing things all over the world in their areas of expertise. That's so, that's so cool. I like love Antarctica. that the initiative exists. Sorry. That's yeah, that's cool. Get it? Get <laughs> Pretty it? Pretty cool. Because, huh. But sadly, not as cool as it should be. Going to Antarctica in summer, it's particularly in a summer where it was really warm. Like you mm. remember the before COVID hit and, and everyone got massively distracted from everything else. There was a whole <laughs> lot of news. So in February of 2020, so just before COVID started yeah. to be the only thing we knew about, yeah. there were big news stories about the fact that for the first time ever, a temperature over 20 degrees Celsius had been recorded in Antarctica. Oh, yeah. And that should I had never happen. I've forgotten about that. And I'm alarmed that I've forgotten about that. Yeah. Because you're I'm right. I'm not even just, sure yeah. I even heard about that. If I did, it's just like well, well gone. Mm. Yeah, and there was a day, I think it was Christmas Eve 2019, so only a week or two weeks after we'd left, there was another piece of research came out showing that there'd been the greatest ever day melt of ice on that particular day. Mm. So if you imagine it, you know, Antarctica is mostly ice mm. and every day the sun comes up in summer and, the, you know, it's a very long day. It's not getting dark until about 11 o'clock at night and then mm. the sun's rising again at 3 in the morning. So there's a lot of sunlight in summer. Yeah. And so it's very normal that a whole lot of ice melts every day, but then overnight it freezes again. And I I can't remember the exact figures. It might be like it's normal for 8% or 6% or something of the ice to melt on any given day. Mm -hmm. But on Christmas Eve 2019, uh, the estimates were that 24% of the the ice melted. And then in February you have 20 degrees Celsius and, you know, it's, it's, I don't think anyone could go to Antarctica now and not kind of go, well, climate change. This, this is real. Yeah, yeah. climate change is. <laughs> how much of Antarctica is actually land versus how much of it is just big old hunk of frozen ice on the ocean as opposed so, to melted ice? 
That's an awesome question that I have no idea the answer to. <laughs> you would think I would know that, but I don't actually know. I mean, that's something that I that was really interesting to me that there were places in Antarctica where there was no snow or ice at all and you sort of think is this just the product of climate change and it turns out no you know these sites are really important for different uh, wildlife species and you know there's moss in Antarctica and of course there's no trees but there is moss and there's there's fungi and actually is there Mm. fungi I could be wrong but there's definitely cool mosses. That surprises Mm. me that there's moss there because I thought Antarctica was classified as a desert technically. I'd heard and I thought moss yeah. required very yeah. high humidity and moisture rich environments to survive and thrive. Well, I think the definition of desert is just uh, how little rainfall. the amount oh, of rainfall. Yeah. As opposed to yeah. how wet or dry it is in fresh water. Yeah, so, so I know Antarctica is basically the highest, the coldest, the windiest, the driest, the least inhabited continent. I mean, that's the other really interesting thing to think about is that Antarctica is the only place on Earth that didn't have an Indigenous um, uh, people. You know, there were mm. no people originally living there until right. uh, people on ships from, from mm. Russia and Norway and wherever basically discovered it. But so, you know, how much of it is ice, I, I honestly can't remember. What I do know is that 90% of of the world's ice is in Antarctica. And if you imagine a scenario in which it all melted, which clearly is unlikely, but Mm. if that happened, then sea level would rise by 60 metres. Oh, and we talk about the sea level rising by like a few centimetres as being like really catastrophic for a lot of nations. So 60 metres. 60 Mm. metres if it all melted. Would there be any land left on Earth other than the Himalayas? No, that's that's a really good question. I mean, sixty meters. I mean, obviously there'd be plenty of mountain ranges, but mm. yeah, there'd be a lot Anything of islands. That's a, more than sixty <laughs> meters above sea level would be fine. Australia yeah, might lose so. our status as the largest island at that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But ninety percent is a lot, isn't it? Because I mean, Antarctica is named as in being the opposite to the Arctic. That's where the yeah. name comes from. Oh right. And so you'd kind of imagine maybe that you know half of the ice is in the Arctic and Greenland, mm. and half mm. it is in Antarctica. But no, it's ninety percent mm, is wow. in Antarctica. Especially because, like, you know, kind of coming back to Matt's question about how much is just ice versus land. Like, mm. that's another difference between like uh, the Arctic and Antarctica. Right? Is that Antarctica is an actual continent of land, yeah. which then has you know meters and meters of snow and ice kind of on top of the land whereas the arctic doesn't have a big kind of land mass it is just kind of sheets of ice on top of water yeah so like the north pole is in the middle of the ocean essentially whereas the south pole is actually on land um so yeah you would definitely or i definitely thought that it was a lot more evenly split between the north and the south polar regions in terms of ice so that's wild that 90 percent of it is south wow and I guess I the, that's that that's, that's the other thing I should point out is just for full disclosure, you know, when people think of Antarctica, they think of incredibly remote, you know, trekking for days and days and days mm. across this massive landmass and trying to get to the South Pole. We went to the most accessible part of mm. Antarctica, which is the Western Antarctic Peninsula. So um, I guess if you're trying to think about getting a whole lot of people together and getting them to Antarctica relatively quickly, that's why most people, unless they're on a research vessel, they leave from mm. South America because mm-hmm. Ushuaia, which is a port at the bottom of Argentina, is only two days by ship from the um, South Shetland Islands and then to the Antarctic Peninsula. So it's mm. it's relatively quick and easy. Now that yeah, crossing okay. is called uh, the Drake Crossing and pe- plenty of people who've done it will tell you all about the Drake Shake, which is where there's, you know, 14, <laughs> 15 metre waves and seasickness is an absolute disaster. And so, you know, it's not an easy crossing, but yeah. it's two days basically from Ushuaia in Argentina to get to the Antarctic Peninsula. So it's pretty quick and pretty close. Did you yeah. experience the Drake Shake? No, we got Drake Lake. Which Drake is Lake. The, yeah, which is the alternate, which uh, was really quite flat and pleasant. And I, I made the very happy discovery that I apparently don't get seasickness because oh, I didn't really awesome. know. Mm-hmm. I mean, the only times I'd really felt seasick in the past was being on little tiny dive boats where you're, you're waiting for slack water so you can jump in and do a dive and you're going mm. up and down and up and down and then mm. it's impossible not to feed the fish. Um, <laughs> but apparently on big ships, no, I don't get seasick. So I just had this incredible time of because we didn't have any classes scheduled for that two-day crossing just because mm-hmm. we, we knew that 
that there'd be plenty of people who weren't well enough to do that. To yeah. So, so once you cross into the uh, into officially uh, um, Antarctic waters, which is basically once you go south of fifty five degrees, you mm-hmm. go through this zone called the convergent zone, which is when the cold Antarctic waters are, are mixing with the warmer waters from the north, and yeah. that mixing is hugely high in nutrients, which means there's lots of stuff in uh, you know lots of little plant matter, lots of uh, mm-hmm. phytoplankton, which means you get lots of fish, which means you get lots of birds. So for those of us well enough to be up on deck, there's just these incredible seabirds everywhere and you just think, my goodness, you know, I'm actually in Antarctica. And then when you spot the first iceberg, oh, you just have to pinch yourself. Magical. It's like, is that real? And from a distance it looks tiny and you're like, oh, it's just this little bit of ice. And then, you know, someone who knows far more than I knew said, uh, actually, when we get close, you'll probably find that's about two or three stories high. And, of course, oh, wow. as you get close. It's just absolutely massive. Oh my god, that's awesome! Yeah, literally incredible. Yeah, exactly, exactly, mm. Matt. We're all so lazy and, and we all use the term awesome for so many things and I'm as guilty of it as anyone. Mm. Kate will tell you I'm this uber-enthusiastic <laughs> person who thinks everything's awesome but then you go somewhere like Antarctica and see this mile-long iceberg and, and that really is awesome. Truly redefines the term awesome for you. It does. Brings it, it does. back to its original meaning. <laughs> yeah, mm. that's right. Full of awor. Yeah. Well, not awful. Gosh. We don't. We don't want it to be all full. We, want, we only oh, wanted to have some awe. actually. Or full. <laughs> or some. Huh. Okay, this is this is not a show about... Uh, Let's do some linguistics. <laughs> yeah. That's really cool. Huh. Cool. Yeah, I'm going to keep laughing Very at myself cool. whenever I say cool because ice, <laughs> because Antarctica. But, well, how, how warm was it? What time of year were you there? You said end of the year, so it was, it was summer. So we, we, we started in the end of November and then yeah. came back mid-December and the coldest we experienced was negative 14, but that was with mm. wind chill. So, you know, mm. it was really the wind and the um, kind of being out in the sleet that made it feel really mm. cold because, of course, you know, it's often snowing. But then yeah. we had a couple of really sunny days and it got up to positive seven degrees, which is... It just felt very confronting. I mean, on the one hand, you're like, oh, it's yeah. so beautiful because the the blue sky and the mm. light and, you know, you're wearing a T-shirt. You're in Antarctica and you are wearing a T-shirt. It mm. blows your mind. Yeah. But then you just kind of Terrifying. sit there. Yeah, you just sit there quietly for a second and think, hmm, I don't think it's meant to be this I don't warm. think I should be wearing a T-shirt in fucking Antarctica. <laughs> Yeah, seriously, because on the other days, you know, that was one of the really interesting things. And then I've given a lot of talks to school kids since I've been back. And one of the Mm. things kids find most interesting is what you have to wear in Antarctica. And when you explain, well, you've got two pairs of thermal pants, two layers of thermal tops, three pairs of socks, inner gloves, outer gloves, down vest, down jacket, uh, outer, you know, outer layer, um, waterproof layer, you know, you really have to layer up. You wouldn't go without a beanie, without a Mm -hmm. neck gaiter. But then all of a sudden you're just wearing ski pants and a T-shirt and thinking, hmm, something's not right in this picture. And you're out on the little Zodiac, which is the little boats that you – so, you know, imagine you're on this massive ship – Mm. Uh, although our ship wasn't nearly as massive as some of the terrifying huge tourist ones we saw. But nevertheless, a ship that can't obviously go into dock on land. Mm. Um, So the way you get from the big ship to to then get onto land is in a little blow-up black zodiac essentially and Mm -hmm. you're sitting there so you can get quite close to to some of the icebergs and and we did a couple of uh, what we called silent cruises because everyone felt really strongly that they just wanted to be immersed in the landscape and not be Mm. distracted by chitter chatter Mm. and all the rest and so it's silent and you're just going past these beautiful icebergs and just watching them drip and drip and drip with the sun shining on them and thinking oh, I don't know about this. And then and then there are times that, you know, the, the wall, the ice walls actually carve oh, in front of you. Yeah. And, and, again, it's normal. It's not like it's a sign that everything's a disaster. Icebergs carve in summer. It's completely normal. But to, to you sort of hear that you hear it almost before you see it. So this mm. massive thunderous crack and then huge amounts of ice just smash into the water and create these, these ripples of waves coming towards you. And one particular place we were in, we are in kind of a hard, Harbor, a, a natural sort of bay and this sound just reverberated around and around and around and it kind of felt like a Hollywood movie just you know these huge waves coming towards you and mm. and the ice is crashing and yeah it kind of felt a bit apocalyptic oh, really. no. 
Well, I mean, it, it kind of is in a way, right? Yeah, like, you know, like you said, it's normal to happen to an extent, but it's definitely happening more than yeah, absolutely. we want it to. I don't want to say then it should, but yeah. then is ideal for the survival of the human race. Well, it's good to see that planet Earth is like diversifying in its apocalypses. Get a few going at the same time <laughs> in case one doesn't work. Throw You've a pandemic in there. Like, get some... <laughs> no, distract them with the pandemic a bit so we forget about the climate change one that's still ongoing. But one of the things that really struck me was how carefully regulated Antarctica is so you feel like you're getting this real sort of wilderness experience. But mm-hmm. it's because IATO, which is the International Organisation for um, Antarctic Tourism Operators, you know, obviously they, they, they do a fantastic job and we learned a lot of rules about uh, how many people were allowed to be on land at any one time and mm-hmm. how you can interact with wildlife, which is obviously you don't. You don't mm-hmm. interact with wildlife and you keep a distance. You know, lots of mm-hmm. really important things that we learned about. But because there are particular landing sites in the Antarctic Peninsula that work really well to have groups, small groups of people go on to and go for a little walk and all of that, and they want you to feel like you're the only ones there. So the way mm. the ships are organised is you don't actually see many other ships, but then we were fortunate enough to go to a couple of bases because there are obviously bases in Antarctica. I think yeah. there are 76 of them, of which about mm. I think 40 a year round and 36 are over summer. And we were fortunate to visit a couple. So we visited an Argentinian base called Carlini. We visited a Chinese base called, um, now I've forgotten the name. I think it's Half Moon. Isn't that terrible? I'll remember it in a minute. Um, sorry, no, Great Wall Station. Half Moon is an island. That's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so we got to go to these stations. And if you chat to people, you know, it turns out that actually they're getting visitors all the time. And the, the um, British Natural History Trust, they have a, an amazing place called Port Lockeroy that has a lot of original buildings and all of the contents of those buildings from some of the early uh, explorers in Antarctica. So you can go there and look at these incredible old buildings and, and all of the stuff they've kept there. Mm. But there's also a tourist shop, which, of course, people want to get, to, you know, they want to get souvenirs from Antarctica. I, mean, I would want to get souvenirs from Antarctica. Yeah, and, and you know, like I, I'm not pretending to be holier than thou. I mm. bought, I totally bought some souvenirs to bring Please home. Yeah, and you they, can send uh, they letters. They have Antarctica snow globes, surely. Oh, I can't believe I didn't even check and get you one, Matt. That's such an <laughs> oversight on my Jen, part. Right. You didn't just, know that Matt collects snow globes? Just like, <laughs> next time you're there, like, just think. Okay. I'll, 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 be sure to, I'll be sure to do that. But you can send mail. So if you want to send someone a postcard that's oh, wow. postmarked Antarctica, you can do it from there. And yeah. so chatting to the staff who work there, they're like, yep, yeah, we get at least two ships a day, every day for the entire yeah. summer. And just thinking that's a lot of people that you don't see because it's yeah. also orchestrated to feel like you're there on your own. Mm. Um, that just sounds like working in hospital, but you just happen to be in Antarctica. Yay. Well, actually, like who are the staff members? Are they, because people don't live on Antarctica kind of permanently. There's just, as far as I'm aware. Um, no, are they people, people that just come seasonally to work in the yep. tourist shop and, you know, whatever? Yeah, and they have lots of other really important jobs to do. You know, they're trying to maintain these incredibly historically important old buildings and artefacts mm, and they're also mm. always collecting weather data and, you know, there's lots to do and there's a oh, there's yeah. a big breeding penguin colony there that they've got to work around. You know, they're trying to paint and they can't do, go too close to the penguin nests. And, I mean, it's an mm. incredible job to spend a summer on Port Lockeroy. But essentially, you know, a major part of your job is restocking the, the tourist shop because people mm. are coming in and cleaning you out constantly mm. and then they have to hand frank all the postcards that people are sending and because a lot of the women who were on our trip had crowdfunded to help them get there because it's obviously very expensive going to Antarctica one of yeah, the rewards they had for crowdfunding was I'll send you a postcard uh, from, from Antarctica, Antarctica. Mm. so yeah, I think so our that's... ship alone brought I can't remember what it was now but I'll make up a terrible sounding number but you know it was like 5,000 oh. pieces of mail or you know something and these had to be hand franked What does franking a postcard mean? You know, you put a stamp on it to say Uh um, Port Lockeroy, Antarctica and the date and then, you know, and then it gets sent off. Um, a huge amount of work. Oh my god! <laughs> so perhaps perhaps not as glamorous as as you thought. But talking to the scientists who work on some of the other bases was really interesting because these are people whose scientific passion, you know, obviously, Kate, neuroscience is the thing that sparked your your passion, your excitement. Mm. That's what you're devoting your time to. You know, there are people who are just inherently interested in anything from 
water currents, to penguins, to mm. some of the other incredible wildlife, to the moss, to whatever it is, and the way they do their field seasons and collect their data is they need to go to Antarctica. Mm. Which must just be truly incredible. Like, yeah, imagining the same sort of passion that I have for brains. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, if you get to go somewhere as incredible as Antarctica to explore that, it must be such an awesome, awesome opportunity but also really expensive. Because of how remote and like inhospitable the place is, the amount of money that would have to go into, you know, just keeping people alive, you know. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and I assume like getting food, like how did you, how did how does that work with food? What sort of stuff? I doubt you do can you have much agriculture and gets in Antarctica. Imported. Yeah, presumably it all gets brought in from yeah. elsewhere. Uh, I mean, I think the ships like we were on, um, I mean, I just felt so like such an imposter because people were like, oh, was it, were you really roughing it in Antarctica? I'm like, no, I was pretty much on a five-star, you know, in a five-star hotel really because yeah. when you're on a ship like we're in, there's a full hotel staff, you get all your meals in a lovely restaurant, uh, you know. We were getting off the Zodiacs and getting back on the ship and being handed a hot chocolate. Mm. I mean, well, I guess it's like a pretend. cruise ship, right? Like cruise yeah. ships have to take their own food with them and... Yeah, and the most incredible chefs and, I mean, the thing that I found extraordinary was the way they clearly just have such expert knowledge on food and food storage because mm. they were explaining to us they have all these fridges of different temperatures and we'd been at, at uh, sea for three weeks without any input of new food and yet yeah. we were still eating uh, really, you know, things like lettuce. I mean, how do you oh. have crisp lettuce after three yeah. weeks? How do you have crisp lettuce after three weeks? I, I don't know, you know, and obviously there's huge amounts Snap of knowledge that goes into that. Mm. And, and, and certainly what was available did change over the three weeks but essentially it was just incredible but one of the things I really liked was that when we went to visit a base you could see that uh, the the um, incredible staff working in the kitchen on our ship would always prepare a couple of boxes with some fresh stuff to deliver to the base to kind of say thank mm. you for having us and here here's our offering here's some fresh Aww. food yeah because yeah, people who are on those bases for months and months and months at a time obviously they would get deliveries of mm. food every now and again but there's no way they'd have fresh stuff the majority of the time and people yeah. say oh surely there'd be lots of seafood I'm like mm, it's not actually that easy to go out fishing in you know just just off about, the just local iceberg yeah exactly so I really liked that and, and just sort of being observant and asking questions of the expedition staff we were with about how some of that hospitality and culture works because for us mm. it seemed so foreign that you would make your living traveling around on a ship in Antarctica but of course there's a lot of people well and, and obviously those people who are suffering incredibly now with COVID because they don't have their jobs mm. um but you know that's a it's a really amazing living to make if you're highly skilled if you're a highly skilled specialist who knows how to do the safety that's required to get in, in expert people on and off ships on and off Antarctica to show them the, the beauty of Antarctica without risking their safety so you know mm. the expedition staff would always go ahead of us they would check everywhere we were walking they would be obviously looking for crevasses they would be marking out exactly where we were allowed to walk where we couldn't walk they'd explain to us about you know if you if you fall into the ice and, and you know down to your knees or down to your thighs which you do all the time it's really important you dig you know you fill that mm. hole back in because if a penguin falls into that hole it can't get out mm. and just you know the things that we as as scientists were absolutely willing to do it's like mm. if I make a yeah. hole I'll fill it in but you can imagine a lot of tourists they've spent a huge amount of money to get there mm. it might not be a priority for them to do that so you know these expedition staff are spending huge amounts of time preparing a site for you to visit mm. and then making it look like Cleaning you were never there afterwards mm. after yeah. you left yeah exactly Ama amazing people who are very very knowledgeable Look, you mentioned penguins and I want to just like <laughs> jump on that what I, totally. I want to hear about the penguins I penguins are so cool I you know, I don't. I don't know what to ask you about the penguins, but I think yeah, I think <laughs> the thing about penguins is that they are just as endearing and enchanting as you might imagine. Because yeah, 
you don't want to feel like you're just this kind of bunny hugger who's like, oh, I love penguins. But mm. you can't not love penguins. You can't not just... love penguins. They're it's adorable. To not love they penguins. are. They've got they're tiny totally... little feet and they can't fly and they're so slippery. So one of the amazing things about penguins that I guess I'd seen on documentaries but I hadn't really understood is that penguins tend to make tracks through the snow and then they all follow that same track, which makes sense, kind of path of least mm. resistance. You know, mm. as you pack down the snow and the ice, it means it's easier to walk on. And they're called penguins. Yeah. highways. I love that. That's actually so cute, penguin and highways. They're so cute. And the rule is that as a, as a human there, penguins always have right of way. <laughs> so what yes. that means is that if you're walking and you come to a penguin highway, you have to kind of look left, look right. <laughs> and if there are penguins coming, you have to stand there until and all of way. the penguins have gone past. And so sometimes you're just kind of standing there you know, just thinking, oh, gee, I could be here for a while because there are all these yeah, penguins are they massive, walking along like, their highway. What sort of, you know, size groups are we talking? Like massive oh, look, groups of penguins coming past? Probably only, I think for us, maybe four or five at a time heading in towards the colony. But, you know, four or five penguins that are, you know, not super speedy walkers True, and are, equal, not the you know, spaced out. Animals, <laughs> uh, you know, plodding along. Yeah, yeah, so you just kind of stand there and go, okay. I'll just wait for the penguins. So yeah, penguin highways. Super, That's really super cool that cool. that happens in Antarctica with penguins because you know similar things happen. You know, in Australia, in the bush, you go for a bushwalk and you see little what look kind of like tracks going off into the bush, but they're not quite tracks because they're tracks that animals have made and they're tracks that the animals were going over and over again because it's yeah. easy to navigate their way through the bush on these ready-made tracks that they've created. But I'd never considered that that would be the same on the snow in these kind of big open plains because I didn't really think of the snow as being a path of resistance, but I suppose it would When you're be. a little penguin. When you're a little mm. penguin, that snow's a lot deeper for you. Yeah. And I always think about who's the trailblazing penguin who sets out to create a new highway mm. and deals with the, with the, the non, you know, the non-compacted snow and ice. Whew, be tiring. Mm. I wonder if they have like, you know, that uh, there's a penguin that knows that that's its role is to, it's the highway forger and that's its role in the little penguin society. And it goes out and it makes these new paths. I, I like reckon. to think that that's true, but I, you know, disclaimer, there's no, there's no fact checking behind this. This is just a little <laughs> headcanon of my own, but. I don't see why yeah. there can't be penguins with a sense of discovery. Exploration. <laughs> but isn't it so hard not to anthropomorphize penguins? Like having seen it movies is. like Happy Feet, and because yeah. they just seem these charming little individuals, it's so hard not to give them because they walk on two feet and they got these flippers <laughs> that are kind of like arms. They're just kind of like I don't know. They, they've got this mm. childlike innocence about them that's hard. And not they're to and they're comical. Like they're they're really mm. funny. They make you mm. laugh. You can't help but not think about them as having personalities like mm. we do, which is you know is really bad and kind of wrong but I don't know I think you'd be lying if you pretended oh. that you didn't I think, think it's about a very it that human <laughs> thing to do that to most animals though mm, right yeah, like we sure. kind of we do that to our pets like my my dog is just as much a human as <laughs> I am um oh, in my, my mind too. anyway yeah my, but, my dog too <laughs> mm. And, and yeah, so, so I guess I didn't know much about penguins before mm. I went and I was pretty excited to see a few different species of penguin, but then yeah. learning about how different species of penguin are being influenced by climate change, that was pretty, um, pretty striking to me. So mm. I guess the two species that we saw the most, well, we saw a lot of chin strap penguins. And if anyone goes onto, um, onto socials for, for the podcast, you'll see a picture of Kate with, mm. with the penguin my beside zoom, her per, my zoom virtual background right now has a penguin yeah, that's right so that's everyone... a chin that's a chin strap penguin uh, yep. but we saw that the populations we saw most of were gen 2 penguins mm-hmm. and these guys they're uh, just a total riot to watch. So we got to see the largest remaining colony of Gentoo penguins on the Antarctic Peninsula. And oh, wow. it's just noisy and smelly and, <laughs> you know, totally crazy to watch. And it turns out that Gentoo penguins are coping really well with climate change. So they're very oh, flexible in good. what they eat. 
they're not too fussed about what they eat. They they can breed in lots of different places. And so mm-hmm. the numbers of Gentoo penguins are actually going up. I think from um, there was a study that was done over 20 or 25 years into I think it ended in around 2017 or at least the data I saw was up until 2017 and their numbers had quadrupled or something or more in that period which was awesome and yeah watching them they're just classic because they're all kind of talking to each other and squawking and they sound a bit like donkeys which I know it's hard to imagine a penguin sounding like a donkey but I'll have to send you guys a video to listen to. Matt I'll send you a video so you can add some penguins an audio yeah, okay. into the podcast of them kind yeah. of squawking at each other. I can do that. But they build little nests with kind of pebbles and they're always moving around trying to steal a pebble from somebody else to bring back to their nest. But they don't seem to realise that while they've gone off stealing a pebble from someone else, another penguin's come into their nest to steal a pebble. So it's just kind of this revolving, you know. Um, it's like that game that you play like with kids or as a kid rob the nest where you yeah. like go, yeah. Mm. It's like this perpetual motion machine that the, the pebbles never perpetual stop moving. Motion machine. <laughs> perpetual motion machine. Previous episode, has them. <laughs> uh, well, maybe we're we're missing so out cool. on this, you know, new renewable energy source of harnessing the power <laughs> of Oh, Matt, you're a genius. <laughs> this is how we're going to solve climate change. Just don't show this to Peter, and we should be fine. I don't think oh, I don't think oh, good. animal rights activists would be too happy with uh, the the harnessing oh, Peter, of penguins. Peter, as in P E T A. I was like, who's Peter? <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was thinking like... you were meaning Peter Singer. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Yeah, maybe. But no, then, no, no, I so meant P E T A, not not like PTA, some yeah, bloke. No, okay. Not Peter. Old mate. Then, old mate Peter. The the other penguins that we that I really fell in love with were the Adelie penguins, and they're just so we're talking in both cases really small black and white penguins. We didn't see mm-hmm. any emperor or king penguins where we went. We we yep. weren't in the right places for them. And Adelie penguins that you think, oh, surely they're kind of the same. They must be doing okay, just like the Gentoos. Um, but it turns out over the same 25 or 35 or whatever year period that the, they were mm. tracking the Gentoos doing so well, their numbers, I think, halved or even more oh, went down massively. Sure. And it turns out that Adelie penguins are much more reliant on sea ice because they travel quite long distances to feed and they rest mm. on the sea ice. Wow. And they also feed on um, more on krill and krill tend to congregate under the sea ice because there's lots of microbes and algae and stuff there. So as the mm-hmm. sea ice is declining because of increasing temperatures, the Adelis have got lots, you know, fewer places that they can live. So they're really shrinking away yeah. from the Antarctic Peninsula. And so, you know, being captivated by these birds and, you know, you're trying to stick with the rule that says you can't go within five metres of them. So you're mm-hmm. kind of, you know, inching away so you're not too close, but then you turn mm-hmm. around and realise there's one right behind you because oh. like you've seen in documentaries, they're really inquisitive. They're not scared yeah. of people. Yeah. And then just kind of having this sick feeling in your stomach of, you guys are doing really badly and it's our fault, mm-hmm. like humanity's mm-hmm. fault. You didn't yeah. do anything to deserve this changing in temperature, this loss of sea ice, you know, that's that's not fair. Um, no. It really, yeah, it really hit me just feeling this overwhelming sense of kind of responsibility. And, you know, we saw so much else, you know, so many other incredible wildlife. Orcas, which I'd always dreamed of seeing an orca, and you can see orcas yeah. all over the world, but I'd just never seen one before and I was lucky enough oh, to I see my first orcas in, in Antarctica and... Um, crab eater seals and weddell seals and leopard seals. Have anyone seen the kids' movie Happy Feet? Oh, yeah. You know, yes. the leopard seal that eats a yeah. penguin. Terrifying. We got to see leopard seals. Oh, yeah. my God. Did you Are get they, to see uh, a leopard seal eat a penguin? No, no, I didn't. You sound disappointed is... about that. I don't know if that's something I would be disappointed about. I don't know if that's on the top of my to see list. Are leopard seals uh, as big and terrifying in person as they seem in the film Happy Feet? Oh, uh, look, they're pretty fierce looking. Yeah. I mean, mm. obviously, we didn't get very close to them, but, you know, using binoculars and looking at them, you just think, wow, you are a fearsome predator. You mm. are pretty amazing. Mm. And then there's Weddell seals, which are just incredible. And elephant seals. Oh, my goodness. Do you guys know about elephant seals? Like, <laughs> so a baby, so a baby elephant seal. An elephant seal is about 40 kilos when they're born and they're still considered a wiener 
as in kind of a baby until they get to about <laughs> 200 kilos. And they're just this massive blubber. 200 so, kilos? Yeah, 200 what kilos. What the fuck? <laughs> That's a Google lot of photo seal. of an elephant seal real quick. And so, so you're on the beach watching them try to inch their way up the shore and they just kind of like it's so much effort for them to move on land. Of course, they're incredible mm animals in the sea. I think they can dive down to two kilos, uh, sorry, to two kilometres deep. They eat fish and squid and, mm. you know, they're incredible animals in the water. But on land, they're just trying to inch their way up and they kind of go, uh, uh, <laughs> then they stop and all the blubber just kind of rolls backwards and forwards <laughs> for a bit and they rest for a bit and then they kind of inch forward a bit more and they've just got these beautiful faces and they're super inquisitive. They have, and do they have little They little have those trunky little trunk things? things, right? No, no, so that's no. the thing. So as a baby, you know, this 200 kilo baby, Maybe. There's no way to tell if, if they're a male or a female, or at least not without mm. getting much closer than I would dare or be allowed to get them to get, mm. get close to them. But then as they get bigger, the males do start to develop these slight noses, which are only big once the male is is massive and full grown. They get to um, 3,000 kilos. What so, you know, fuck? they are absolutely what? massive. <laughs> but the young males, mm. the young males fight with one another to practice for when they're going to be grown up. And so, you can just imagine they're kind of reared up and they're just, you know, jostling, kind of oh jousting each other with their chests and making all these noises. Matt, I'll have to send you more noises to edit in of these male <laughs> these male elephant seals kind of play fighting with one another. And they're just, I mean, they're just unbelievably captivating to watch. Just, Gosh. yeah, incredible. What was your favourite animal that you saw, do you reckon? Oh, look, I'm an ecologist, Kate, so I, I love <laughs> I know, this is, this is um, the hardest question to ask, isn't it? Make you choose a favourite. I'll, I'll tell you probably my favourite moment in Antarctica, okay. which is hard to pick because there were there were so many moments. But um, as Kate knows, I'm a runner. I love to run. And I went to Antarctica a few weeks having after having run a marathon. So I was super fit and I'd been mm-hmm. running a lot and, you know, I was feeling um, it was hard to then just completely stop running. But on a ship, obviously, it's hard to yeah. hard to run. run we did have the deck. Well, we did have one deck that went all the way around and mm-hmm. I can't even remember now. I feel like all the way around was... I don't know, would 180 metres be right? Oh, no. I can't remember. Anyway, you know, it wasn't very far to go yeah. all the way around. Yeah. And and initially when we got on the ship, I'm like, oh, awesome. I'll just get up really early every morning and just run laps, you know. Mm. I could mm. do I could do a half marathon. <laughs> I could do 50 laps, whatever it takes. But then I discovered that immediately under that deck were people's cabins and they were oh, sleeping there. The and feet, yeah, footsteps. And, and that would just be massively disrespectful to Very do that. Rude. So yeah, completely inappropriate. So I'm like, okay, be the bigger person here. Mm-hmm. You know, you're never going to, probably never going to be in Antarctica again. You can just not run for three weeks. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Mm. But then one day I'm just like, I just really need to run. So I decided one day I needed to run more than I needed to eat dinner. So when everyone else mm-hmm. was in the restaurant eating dinner, I'm like, I won't be disturbing anybody. I can go and run as many laps as I want. <laughs> oh there won't be anyone else on the deck and I don't need dinner. I mean, there's so much food. It was fine. So there I am running around and around and around just mm. feeling wonderful getting mm. this exercise. And then I see this orca fin. So, you know, most, you know, whales you you see by the fin and watching humpback whales is just amazing because, you know, they kind of surface and shoot air out of their blowholes and then they go down a bit and then they come up and you see the spray out of the blowhole again and then sort of the fourth time a humpback whale will do that, you'll see the tail fluke because they'll Mm. show you their tail before they then dive down deeply. Mm. So it's amazing. And I see this orca fin and think, oh, Okay. So I stop running and go over to the side and picture this, you know, I'm completely alone. There is nobody mm. else around. And I see a whole family of orcas. <gasps> so no adult adult male, adult female, which you can tell apart because of their dorsal fin length, so the, yep. the fin on their back. The mm-hmm. males is much, much longer. And then two baby orcas. Oh. And they just oh travelled beside the ship. And I was completely alone. I didn't have a camera with me, you know, had nothing to mm. record. It. And I just thought, this I bet is that awesome. image is like burnt in your brain forever, though, right? Like, yeah. oh. and it was actually better that I didn't have any way of taking a photo or a video because mm-hmm. if I had, it would have been, oh, quick, I need yeah, to get the perfect true. picture. And I but had nothing with me. Just, you just you know, had to be present and experience and the moment. Yeah. yeah, and I just watched them and I just thought, you know, I'm just the luckiest person on the planet and I just, mm. you know, I kind of get a bit teary thinking about it because just oh, yeah. how lucky was I? I was there at the right moment yeah. on the right day to just see this family of orcas going about their mm. life and just trying to imagine what their world is because, mm. you know, I don't spend a lot of time 
scuba diving or anything else. I certainly will never have the skills or the experience to do it in, in Antarctic waters. So I don't really mm. have a good sense of what it looks like under there under and just there, thinking yeah. that's that's their world. Yeah, An entire alien Gosh. world that you'll never get to experience most likely and you just get yeah. to have like a little peek through the surface there. Mm, but you're a lot closer to having experience than the majority of mm. the population. Yeah, yeah, no, it was, so that that was my favourite moment. So whether orcas are my favourite animal or not, I mean, you know, free willy, who didn't say free willy when they were <laughs> a kid? But, but yeah, that was probably my favourite moment. But then, you know, I also did get to swim in Antarctica, which felt like a Ooh, pretty important really? rite of passage, which is kind of just a tourist thing. Yeah. But I'm like, well... Am I going to be so high and mighty as to say, no, I don't want to do a tourist thing? I mean, come on, get over yourself. There's a reason tourist things are again. tourist things. Like, just because they're cool to do. Like, otherwise people <laughs> yeah. wouldn't do them, right? And, and, and it was very cool. Ah. So, you know, there's no, there's no wetsuits here. You've just got to run Wait, in in your bathing. No wetsuit? No, no, no. We just we just Wim Hof breathing. So. Just go for it, right? Oh, it Be was, at one it with was, the cold. It was amazing. So normally the way they do it for tourists is that you just kind of jump off the back of the ship so there's no moment of hesitation. So you, you're kind yeah, of on the back deck. Kind of you literally wear a, take the plunge. Yeah, you're wearing a bungee cord around your waist so that if you have any problem they can haul you back in. Mm. You yeah. know, and you just jump off and, and then quickly come in again and get warm and whatever. But because normally there's not that many people who want to do it mm. they can do it that way whereas on our ship pretty much every single person said yeah i want to do that 111 of you <laughs> yeah and there just wasn't enough time because a oh. uh, long story but there was a storm coming and we needed to mm. get out and it's kind of like well if we're going to do this you're going to have to be able to do it in big groups which means you can't do it off the back of the ship we're just going to have to get you on land and then you're going to have to run in from the shore which anyone who's ever experienced cold water it's so much mm. harder to get in when you yep. have yeah. to go you have to wait you know, rather than jumping in nah yeah 100%, yes that's... so so we ran in so I wore shoes because I was advised that the thing that would make it hardest would be my feet on the cold oh, kind of pebbles true, that that would be yeah. really hard so I just wore running shoes so bathers running shoes mm-hmm. and you know groups of women just holding hands squealing together it was awesome and just running Gosh. in but it's just it was intoxicating I think I ended up doing it three times before I realized I couldn't feel my hands and that probably I was <laughs> going to create a, a risk for myself and create a nightmare for the staff with us mm. who were there keeping us safe if I tried to do a fourth time. But, oh, it was just awesome. <laughs> oh, there's Gosh. icebergs. The water's two degrees and you're in there. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it was really cool. So, you know, there are tourist things that I guess, as you say, Matt, that's a reason that they're such a popular thing to do because mm. you never forget them. And, I mean, I guess, you know, you're already there you're not going to do extra damage to Antarctica and to the environment or whatever by engaging in those sorts of activities while you're yeah. already there, right? Yeah, like, totally. doesn't change you know. your carbon footprint. It doesn't change mm. anything about, you know, being on that ship and how it far It just means you're making traveled. the most of the opportunity that's been presented mm. to you, which 100% yeah. is the right thing to do. Yeah, and particularly is. given that in my family I'm known to be someone who always gets cold and is super chicken and won't ever go, <laughs> you know, in cold water. I'm like, I don't think you you can tease me anymore. I, I know you've now got that myself. forever. Whenever someone's like, do this thing, you're like, sorry, don't have to. I've already, I swam in Antarctica. So, you know, back off. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Just leave me alone. Okay. Well, surely that alone. encourages you now that like any other cold water is nothing compared to what you did yeah, in Antarctica. Yeah, you've done so, like, that. You anything, anything else is like right? a spa. So you have no excuse but to do oh, all look, all Matt, the cold you, swims you, now. You would think that, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> I think there was a certain amount of adrenaline that, I, mm. I don't necessarily get in Port Phillip Bay here in no? Melbourne that can often feel quite cold. Just like really, bring a Port tray Phillip of ice Bay cubes and throw stunning. it in and pretend they're mini icebergs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm such I a mean, wuss. Look, you could, but. <laughs> so the other thing that we were really fortunate with our trip to Antarctica was that we were in Antarctica for the 60th anniversary of the Treaty of, uh, sorry, the Antarctic Treaty. Mm. So the Antarctic Treaty was agreed to on the 1st of December 1959 and at that time it was 12 countries who kind of all had a claim to parts of Antarctica and they got together and they agreed that uh, there would be no mining there, that there would be no, I can't remember the list of all the things they weren't allowed to do, but essentially there'd be no exploitation and there'd be no Mm. uh, fighting there so this international agreement um no military exactly and so these 12 countries which you know this is cold war times and the countries included Mm. russia and america so this is you know quite phenomenal that these countries 
could say Antarctica and its preservation is more important than our own particular motivations and mm. egos and all the rest. And so Antarctica was declared a place that had to be devoted to peace and to science, mm. which just blows my mind because I can't think of many other times when humans have decided that science and peace come ahead of any other personal motivations. The world would be a much, much better place if... Uh we thought that peace and science, you know, if peace and science got the recognition that they deserved. Uh... Oh, look, absolutely. And, and I mean, you know, it's not all roses, although since then many, many, many other countries have signed onto the treaty. Mm-hmm. People with far more knowledge and experience and expertise in Antarctica will tell you that the treaty does not stand up to, to modern times and that Antarctica, mm. in fact, is being thoroughly uh, spoiled by too many tourists, too much fishing. Mm. Fishing, you know, I think we take um, something like three hundred thousand tons of fish out of Antarctica every year because of the oh global God. demand for omega three fish oil uh, oh. and for fish meal. So you know, it's not as though Antarctica is pristine in any way. But mm. I guess the flip side of that is to think, well, where would we be if it wasn't for that yeah. treaty? The treaty Gosh, might like not be how enough. How much worse would it be? Exactly. So I, I reckon that's phenomenal. And for us to be there on the sixtieth anniversary, anniversary of that day. Yeah. Did you do anything? Awesome. Was there any, like, was there like a ceremony or anything to sort of commemorate the anniversary? Yeah, we had a big banner which had been made specially and we got photos of everybody uh, on the ship holding mm-hmm. the banner and, you know, we, we were aware that we had power uh, in numbers because we were the largest ever all-women expedition to Antarctica. So that oh, immediately awesome. got us some media kind of... Um, you know, traction, I guess. Uh, We also, for um, the climate rally at that time of year, you know, we were the southernmost climate rally and we had lots of banners and, you know, we had Mm. some really capable comms people with amazing camera gear and, you know, I mean, we we weren't sending out many tweets or anything else at the time because uh, we didn't have a lot of internet access, but we knew that we could get some traction being this Mm. big group of women. So we certainly tried to make make a bit of noise about it, yeah. Did you know that you were going to be there on the 60th anniversary was that planned or did you just kind of realize on the boat over like oh hey this is also going to be a thing cool cool coincidence um i don't necessarily think that the voyage was planned for then because that's obviously hugely reliant on just when you can get time on the ship and yeah. has to be booked years in advance and all the rest um but certainly it was it was known that that was going to happen and we had this big printed banner that had been organized in advance for us to have mm. and yeah no it was it was pretty cool um yeah it was I felt very lucky to be there on such an auspicious Mm. day. Mm. What year Mm. did this take place? I can't remember if you mentioned earlier, sorry. So it was the 1st of December 1959, so we were there on the 1st of December 2019. So that's 60 years, right? Have I done my sums, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yes. 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 <laughs> 50 plus 10 is 60. Yes. I believe that's how math works. <laughs> this is me so we're not mathematicians. Oh. <laughs> well, I just could have totally mis- misremembered my days. I mean, it's weird because it feels like I was in Antarctica so recently. Mm. Yet, you know, this oh. whole crazy 2020 that was the 2020 longest, shortest 2020 year ever. Was barely a year. It, 2020 didn't happen, right? That's a year. Everyone that I speak to, like, you know, you remember stuff that happened in 2019 as though it happened last year because 2020 just... Or a decade ago, right? It was either last year or it was a decade ago. It was simultaneously (laughs) both. Uh, Schrodinger's event, it was either, it was both. Yeah, Yeah. it was so weird. And didn't. All right, well, before we shuffle along to our listener question, there's one last thing that I want to get you to quickly talk about, which was the... I'm going to call it the sound, the sound yes. of Antarctica. Is that what your um, Ooh, thing you wrote was called? Yeah, sound. Matt, the sound guy. You're gonna, you're gonna love this. This is really cool. Um, yeah, yeah. I wrote Jen a piece knows what called, I'm talking about. <laughs> I wrote a piece called "Listening to Antarctica" because I realized right. that a lot of people write about what they see in Antarctica, but actually the noises were Ooh. some of the things that stayed with me. So yeah, if anyone wants to have a read of that, just, mm, you can just I'll Google. link it in the description um, and, as one of the references. Please yeah. do because I will actually read awesome. this. Mm. Um, so yeah, so I wrote about listening to Antarctica, but yeah, no, I know exactly what Kate's talking about. One of the things that really made me very emotional about being in Antarctica was if you're out in this little zodiac, right? So you're in this little tiny boat and you're uh, leaving your ship and going over to land, or you're just traveling around on the zodiac and kind of just being immersed in the landscape. There's lots and lots of little pieces of ice on the surface, which I'd never 
thought about. I thought of, you know, this big land mass of ice and then I thought about big icebergs. I'd never really mm. realised that there's just lots of pieces of ice floating on the surface, which in itself is crazy, right, that mm. they don't mm. melt. Mm. And you can pick these little pieces up and look at them and kind of go, wow. And if you look at them, you notice that there's lots of little tiny air bubbles in them. And, you know, when you're a kid, you hold a shell up to your ear and mm. you, you, you're you told that you can hear the ocean. It's like, oh, that's amazing. Mm. But if you pick up a piece of ice, it's just kind of crackling and popping. And, you know, it makes you think of the snack snap crackle pop ads for rice bubbles because they're mm. really noisy <laughs> rice and we were all really like ice bubbles yeah exactly hey. Hey. Woohoo! Thank you, thank he, he's thank you. he's a poet and didn't know it <laughs> oh he knows <laughs> so so you're listening to these sounds and what was explained to me was that the sounds that you're hearing are as the ice melts the little ice bubble, sorry, the little air bubbles inside the ice. It's are, catching on. Uh, you know, uh, it is uh, being released back into the atmosphere. And I just had this sudden really profound moment mm. of thinking if the, if the air bubbles in the ice could talk to the atmosphere, what would they say? Because these air bubbles, depending on the age of the ice, we were told these air bubbles could be anywhere from 100 to tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of years old. Right. So these little bits of air that have been trapped inside this ice for hundreds of thousands of years potentially, and because of just the way the ice is broken up and melted and then you mm. bring it into the air, it melts, and the bubble joins the rest of the atmosphere. And I'm thinking, just imagine, you know, let's anthropomorphise a bit more. Suddenly you're back out in this atmosphere that's changed drastically because it's full of greenhouse gases mm. and this little pristine, pure air bubble that left the greater atmosphere at a totally different time is thinking, hey, what happened out here? What did I miss? Why are you so polluted? And I know it sounds silly to think of it that way, but I was just really taken with this idea that it was like a time capsule, this time capsule of air that was suddenly being reunited with with its parent and just going, whoa, what what happened here? (laughs) What the fuck happened while I was sleeping? Makes me think of Captain America going into the ice and coming out in modern day America and seeing how different everything is and just like not knowing knowing what to do with himself. Mm, my brain yeah. went ang from Last Airbender frozen oh, in ice for yeah. 100 yeah. years. Emerged. It's, and then it's comes a, out and then the Fire Nation is taken over. How interesting is it that a thing in pop culture, though, like this is a concept of someone being frozen in ice and, you know, re-emerging yep. into a changed world is a mm. very, you know, it's it's a trope that's used, but it's a yeah, thing that, totally. you know, you can think about in terms of the air and the atmosphere. That's wild. So I wonder I if you're in, wild. you know, Antarctica and you've got all of this ice melting around you, releasing all of this air... Did the air feel more pure to breathe? Oh, that's such a good question, Matt. I mean, it, I don't know if it felt different, but, I mean, it's just cold. So I think cold <laughs> air always kind of feels pure mm, and it yeah. smelt different. I mean, that was the thing. It just had this incredibly kind of clean, cold smell. I mean, I don't really think I have the words to describe it because it's not something I've had previous experience with. But mm. other than when you're close to a penguin colony, which stinks, <laughs> <laughs> The rest of the time you just have this, yeah, it's this sense of kind of purity which, uh, I mean, in reality it's probably not because of ships and blah, 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 but it felt, it, yeah, it felt really different. That's so cool. Well, thank you. Yeah, because ice is cool. Thank you, Matt. What would we do without you, Matt? Right. The puns, the dad jokes, they just keep coming in and they stop coming. It's my brand. (laughs) Let me have this. I will let you have it. Um... But I think it is well time. As much as I would love to sit here for another four hours and listen to you talk about mm. Antarctica, Jen, I really, truly could do that. Um, we do need to shuffle along to our yes. listener question. Indeed. So today we have a listener question sent in by Reed. And Reed asks, when poison expires, is it more or less dangerous? Oh. Because... Yeah. Because I guess, yeah, if the purpose of the poison is to cause harm and theoretically when something expires, it is less good at its intended purpose. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize poison had expiration dates. Poison has, well, see, this is the thing where you go, first of all, how does one define what a poison is? Because that in itself is kind of an arbitrary question. Like ev- everything, everything can be poison. And in fact, um, when I was looking into this and kind of researching the definition of poison, the definition that I found was that poison is a substance that is capable of causing illness or death to a living organism. And so like, you know, that's one way of defining it. But then when you kind of look further into it and into kind of the area of science called toxicology, which is Mm. essentially looking at poisons and venom and 
you know, and the difference, of course, between poison and venom and just being the... One is ingested, you know, one is The method of delivery, right? yeah. Yeah, exactly. They're both toxins, essentially, mm. or damaging toxins that are harmful to people. But there was a guy named... Oh, I'm going to pronounce this wrong. Why do I bother naming <laughs> We won't judge you, Kate. Paracelus, Paracelus. He was no... Anyway, the father of toxicology, essentially, this guy is, is known as, and he's quite famous for saying only the dose is the poison, meaning that pretty much anything can be poisonous. It's just how much of it you have as to whether it is poisonous or not. And so, you know, things like medication that can be quite helpful at very specific doses, they all have a, you know, a therapeutic window that once you go outside of that, it can be toxic. Um, But are are there some poisons that even the tiniest, tiniest, tiniest amount is, you know, well, Botox, for example. Botox mm. is yeah. one of the most poisonous things out there, but we still use it for other things. But if you were to mm. eat it, um, yeah. then it's then it's poison. But when you kind of, yeah, step away from that kind of ambiguity of what is poison and we just kind of take poison as, you know, things like rat poison or mm. like insecticides, herbicides, whatever, you know, things that are designed and marketed as a poison, Yeah, right? That's what I'm going to, you know... Then once again, we get a very ambiguous answer of <laughs> it depends on the poison. I feel Can like I say it. the answer should be don't drink it regardless of whether it's passed That's a, yeah. by We or probably not. should have a general disclaimer here at Curiosity. <laughs> don't try it. We do not condone <laughs> eating poison whether or not it is passed its use by date. Don't do it. I don't want to be responsible for any of that. No, just don't do it. If it's poison, maybe stay away. Ignore the expiry dates. Um, <laughs> maybe we should but... put a link to the poisons hotline in our, distri- in our description. <laughs> <laughs> Look, maybe. Uh, maybe we will. But, yeah, essentially, yes, it depends on the poison. And so what happens and why there's an expiry date on poisons is because, obviously, over time, um, the the chemicals that are in the poison are going to degrade. They're going to change depending on, you know, how they're stored. They're going to be exposed to the elements in the environment. So sometimes it's just the chemical itself breaking down or undergoing, you know, a chemical reaction, which then becomes other chemicals. That's, that's how it works. When something degrades, it doesn't cease to exist. It just changes into thermodynamics says no. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And so, you know, for example, hydrogen peroxide, right? When it decomposes over time, it becomes water and oxygen gas, which is less dangerous to humans, right? So therefore, you could say becomes less dangerous. Um, and a lot of organic poisons, like common insecticides and herbicides, you know, they do break down over time and lose their toxicity. Um, however, some herbicides or some of these organic poisons break down into more harmful chemicals. So some Mm. pesticides break down when they're exposed to water. So if there's like humidity in the environment and they kind of get some uh, water, come into contact with some water, they can actually produce a very potent nerve gas. So that's not ideal. Um, Not what we like to see. (laughs) And so, yeah, it very much depends on the compound and what it breaks down into. But then you have things like inorganic poisons, like arsenic, for example, that they, they don't tend to break down as such. But they do still have expiration dates because, once again, they can absorb moisture from the air and change chemically. And the interesting, I found arsenic really interesting because, so when arsenic gets exposed to um, moisture and, and changes, it's, it's interesting whether it becomes more or less dangerous because two things happen to it. Number one, it takes longer to work. So instead of taking like hours to kill an animal, say it might take days or months. So you're like, okay, so it's less dangerous, but it actually becomes like more deadly because it requires a smaller amount to Mm. be lethal. It just takes longer to act. So is that more dangerous? Is that less dangerous? I don't know. You need less of it, but it takes longer. It's mm. so, you know, depends on what your goals are, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you want to, if you want to really, really slowly, painfully kill someone, then, <laughs> then so, some... get off our show and go get some help. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, no. I think that's a good, I think that was a good way to put it, Kate. Thank mm. you. Yeah. <laughs> so look, the, the very short answer is it depends. Sorry, Reed. Mm. I hope that that's, you know, that's not the, the I feel like 90% answer, of but... all of like, 
our listener questions or just topics God, on the I show, know. the answer I is either the science doesn't know or it depends. It depends. That's those I are know, the only it's two answers. People ask such good questions, <laughs> and like that's all science is. Science is yeah. just asking questions and then trying to find answers. But in finding those answers, you find out twenty more questions, and you just go down this rabbit hole of mm. more and more questions. And then people email us with these amazing questions that it's like either science hasn't gotten there yet or it depends because the world is complicated. There are many variables in this situation. Mm, Truly. But that's why we're such science geeks, right, Kate? Because it was all simple. But that's what makes it cool. If it was all black and white, we would have got bored by now. We'd be doing something else. So boring. You know, I'd find my answer and I'd be like, cool, I'm done. What do I do with the next 20 years of my life? Exactly. Mm, No. Science is great. Science is great and don't eat poison. Um, <laughs> or give it to anybody else. Yes. Or give it to anyone else. Yeah. I think those those are the good takeaways. Um, and Antarctica <laughs> is cool. Um, those are the takeaways <laughs> from today's episode. And, you know, if you enjoyed it, remember you can always follow us on social media. We are at Curiosity Rat on Twitter and Instagram. And if you have a listener question that you want me to tell you, it depends or we don't know yet, <laughs> you can email us. CuriosityRat at gmail.com is our email address. And thank you again, Jen, for coming on and talking yes. and being amazing. Um, if people Such want a pleasure. to... No, if people want to hear more from you or see more of the cool stuff that you do, which, you know, you do a lot of cool stuff, let's be real. Um, do you have any social media handles that you want to drop? What's your Twitter? What, what, I do. Where can people find he, you? Here's one I prepared earlier. Um, I'm Cy Doc Martin. So S-C-I and then I Doc Martin, that. but M-A-R-T-I-N, <laughs> basically because I decided the only reason I needed to do a PhD was because I wanted to be a Doc Martin. So. Yeah, that's valid. <laughs> that's valid. If so, my surname was Martin, that would be a pull as well. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's me on Twitter and on Instagram. And uh, for anyone who likes listening to Triple R or wants to listen to Triple R uh, on demand, if you're not a Melbourne person, you've never heard of it, Triple R is Australia's largest community radio station. Mm. Uh, and I've been talking about science on Triple R for 15 years now, which is pretty yeah. awesome. And every Wednesday morning I do a science segment at 7.45. Uh, yeah, seven forty-five Wednesday mornings, and Melbourne I talk time. about any yeah Melbourne time. I talk about any number of interesting things. Actually, if you want to just go back and listen to the segments, you can find a lot of them on SoundCloud. So I'm also Doc Martin on mm. SoundCloud, but I, I am a fair way behind in uploading segments. I must admit, but there's a lot there you can listen to. <laughs> I will link all of these in the description, so do not worry. Go find Jen, check out more of her stuff, and. Give us a cheeky like, cheeky follow. And thank you for listening, guys. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Thank you very much, guys. Thanks for coming on, Jen. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Though it wouldn't be the first time you've had to edit this in. Yeah. (laughs) And it won't be the last. Yep. That's fine. That's fine. It's what it's what I pay you the big bucks for. You pay me nothing. <laughs> I pay you. In I love. get nothing for this except uh, the satisfaction get, over science. You get to brag that you have a podcast. That's right, everyone. Listen I'm a to podcaster. my podcast. I'm a podcaster. What's that? I'm oh, like got, every other white man in my twenties. Let's go. <laughs>